you know what? Uh, there, there, there certainly has been. Uh, we've had a lot of interesting developments coming through uh, our side, and, and it's been very interesting to see kind of the way the economy has shifted over the last couple of years. Uh, quick summary, we just kind of have this crazy demand for credit repair over the last two years as people kind of got into that mortgage and real estate buying, I would almost call it a frenzy. And debt collectors kind of responded in kind. A big part of our practice is debt settlements. And we deal with debt collectors on a daily basis to help people resolve their debts. And well, these debt collectors started to pick up on the fact that consumers had, you know, this need to buy real estate. And so mm -hmm. debt, debt collectors got real tough when it came to debt settlements and debt negotiations. And, and so that's, that's kind of, we've seen that now as this consumer spending has slowed down, we've seen debt collectors slow their role a bit and start to negotiate more in good faith. Uh, but yeah, that's been like the biggest whirlwind for us. So do you think that the, the debt collection industry in general and creditors that are in collections basically heightened their collection practices or maybe change the terms to be more aggressive and getting that uh, debt paid just because they knew that there was less expensive money out there or perhaps people had more money to spend? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, they knew consumers were stimulated with funds. <laughs> and so um, we would typically get a 50% settlement almost without even haggling too hard, you know, between sure. the, the haggle of the century to get somebody down to 50%. So and, was that sometimes kind of a, they just wouldn't a mind shift for you because you were used to getting the the previous uh, it's a better settlements. We would have to work harder for the same results. Mm -hmm. Really, it's what it was, and so a lot of it became. It, it didn't help that consumers were like, whatever it costs, like I whatever it takes, just do it right. And so sometimes the consumer wasn't even allowing us to negotiate because sometimes we need time, like we need time to. Sure. Play it out a little bit, and the consumer would come in, money in hand, hot, like let's do this and let's do this yesterday, and so uh, I think maybe a lot of that added to it too. We've built good relationships and good rapport with a lot of these debt collectors that we deal with on a daily basis, and so they know typically if I'm calling them, you know, someone from my office is calling them, it's it's money on the line, so they know that we're calling for 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 a good reason. Sure. And it's typically to give them some money, make a deal. And so we still are able to, you know, get great deals, but it, 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 it we saw this increase of, no, we want the full amount or no, we want 70%, 60%. Right. And so we would have to fight to get a 50% rate. And sometimes, you know, 50% was easy and we would want to get 30% and 30% are, you know, like that's not going to happen nowadays. We are starting to see 30% come back. Okay. So you're saying there's a shift then, and the shift is yeah. fairly recent, maybe in the last, what, four months, six months? Maybe in the last two, three months, yeah. Okay, good. Well, do you think that the general economy has something to do with that, meaning inflation, uh, wages maybe not going as far, people having no stimulus anymore, obviously additional discretionary funds being limited? Is that a, Do you think affecting that? Yeah. Discretionary funds are limited for debt settlements. People want to fix their credit. They want to improve their credit scores but they don't have unlimited funds like it seemed sure. they did a couple of years ago to basically liquidate and pay all their debts. And they were liquidating and paying the debts per se, but not, you know, negotiating debts or were they like, because they, they were like, um, the, the general sentiment was, I want these, I want these paid ASAP so that I can buy a house ASAP. 
Okay. And so we would have to take with the first settlement that we negotiated, right? There wasn't time to keep on renegotiating a deal to lower it. In those situations, you're saying it just has slowed down or stopped at that kind of level, right? Almost entirely. Okay. Okay. So what kinds of things does your company do? Because we jumped right into it head first. Um, give us some background. What is the name of your company? What do you guys do? When did you kind of get into this? How did you get into this? I mean, a little, a little background on that. Yeah. Yeah. We did kind of just jump straight into the good stuff. Huh? <laughs> we, we talk once in a while and you know, it's, it's obviously been a business relationship for many years and also friendship. So yeah. Yeah. So my company, Innovative Credit Solutions, we started it in 2006. Actually, I started it in 2006 when I was working at a debt collection agency here in town. And that industry was very fascinating to me. I, I did well in that industry, but I always had this knack for helping people. I would find myself calling to collect a debt. And through the phone call, I would help the consumer that I'm supposed to be collecting money from, right? help them make better decisions um, when it came to, you know, just debt in general. And so that knowledge, that skill set that we have from being in, in the debt collection industry really comes into practice when helping people make better decisions on, on, on the credit side. I mean, people are, debt collectors are completely misunderstood, I, I would say, and consumers are have this, you know, really bad, like I've never seen a, a debt collector with like a five-star Google review. If you look up <laughs> debt collectors on Google, sure. they're always going to have like a one-star Google review. And, and some of them are actually just fine people, but you know, their business is not conducive to getting good reviews from clients. And, and so, but that's really where the, the catalyst for innovative credit solutions came from is our experience in the debt collection side. This was 2006. This was right around the last time that the economy decided to turn the other way. Mm -hmm. And so as our, as lending guidelines started to contract and people became more and more, it became more difficult to get a mortgage, lenders started to seek us out because of our skill set, And obviously we just built relationships along the years with many of the, the lenders here in town, you being one of them. And, and so those relationships have, carry to the company, honestly, for the last 15, 16 years. And so our main practice is helping consumers get mortgage ready. That really is 80% of our practice. In that scope of work though, there's a lot of things that we can do. Uh, people don't have the same credit challenges. Some people have credit challenges because they fell through hard times and they defaulted on their bills and you know they just have legitimate, I would say black and white credit issues but that you got really complex credit issues where somebody has a, a victim of identity theft, right? That's a big one. People get their identity stolen. They don't know how to fix it. They don't even know where to start. And there's just anywhere in between where consumers just have the strangest credit issues. I mean, we could have a whole show about just some of these strange credit oh, stories. We're going to have a show about the, that's going to be the credit catastrophes one again, but something that, yeah. you know, it digs is, into so, current times. You know, we did not start this company to help people fix their identity theft issues. Identity theft wasn't even something we knew anything about, but because it's such a common thing over the years, we figured it out and we perfected that practice. And we are very good at helping somebody resolve identity theft issues, prevent them from reoccurring as much as possible. And, um, and so through that, you know, we have all these little things that we could do as credit experts really 
where we can help somebody identify their issue and to say, this is the way to fix this. These are your options and you decide, you know, but this is the way that we, we can, we can get there quickly. We can get there slowly, all depending on what the consumer wants to do. Um, and, and it's very tailored to somebody, right? It's very specific. I, I rarely see, I see similar problems all the time, but we rarely solve those the same way. We always have to make a personal adjustment depending on the consumer situation. And so it's, it's very personal. That's why we, you know, here, um, you have to deal with myself or Richard, who is a partner here in the company, because we're the only ones that I trust has the skill set and the experience to help somebody make the right decisions. These decisions are not something that can be, I, I would say, you know, assigned over to a a, a newer person in the credit industry, uh, you know, it, it requires significant skill set and experience to help somebody understand why we're going to be making some of these decisions when it comes to credit repair. Credit repair is not as simple as most people play it out to be. Most people play it out to be you just send a couple dispute letters, challenge some information on the credit report. The credit bureaus have 30 days to prove it, right? That that narrative is completely false, outdated, and it, it just does not work. And so there's so much misinformation online about that. That sounds great, but in practice, it's not true and it does not work. So uh, have you ever seen the podcaster Bradley? No, which one? Okay. He's, he's basically um, an investor, kind of real estate guru dude. And uh, one of the things he points out is he has a podcast. And one of the things he says is truth bombs, right? Like, so here's the truth and here's what everyone's talking about. Right. So I like to say that there's been this uncovering of people that claim to do credit repair that are really putting band-aids on things and approaching everyone with the same hammer, if you will, and treats everyone like a nail as if they're carpenters. Right. And I think what you're telling me is, is that everyone comes with a unique situation, although there may be similarities between one credit profile and another credit profile. There's nuances in the backside that created that in the beginning. And I've yeah. heard you say in the past, they come to you with this history and it didn't happen overnight. Their credit challenges and the things that are appearing on their credit did not happen overnight. And when I approach a client and I review their credit, the first thing I'm asking myself is, is this something in my wheelhouse that I can give them quick advice to help them to boost their scores enough to get within credit qualifying standards? Or is this something that they need to talk to a true professional like Anselmo, you know, or Richard? Because it, I've given this example in other, you know, speaking engagements is that just because you have MD or medical doctorate behind your name, it doesn't mean that you work on every part of the body. So your podiatrist should not be working on taking out tonsils. So yeah. it's just we want to send those people that have um, industry expertise to people that are specialists do their job well. Because I believe that the response that they're going to get, the outcomes are going to be more favorable. And if there are things that are new to you because of the number of um, clients that you've seen, it's going to be something that you're going to want to dig into and get the answer to because it will only enhance your practice and helping solve problems. So I just see that as a huge net benefit. And I've always trusted my clients with you and Salmo. You've been an integral part to literally turning the tide for families. And I think this is where it comes down to the central point of being – um, an advocate for the client, but also protecting the bank. 
meaning the bank has guidelines. There's no questions about what they do. They're very specific. They're very intentional, and there's no emotion tied to it. So I give an example of you need to be so tall to get on the ride. If you're not that tall, you just don't get on. It's not that they don't like you. It's not that you're a bad person, not that you look like a you know, a purple you know, anteater. It's the fact that you don't meet the minimum requirements. So banks don't make emotional decisions in that sense. So credit is a core, core point. And I think that if you fix your credit challenges and you follow the counsel that your team gives, these people then put themselves on a different trajectory in their life. And I know you've talked about in the past repeat offenders, though, people that <laughs> you help them get online and all of a sudden they come back because they have the same problems or they just weren't very disciplined to stay on the track, um, which is good, I guess, for repeat business. But uh, it, it's something that, you know, there, there are things that they should learn and learn from those mistakes. We we don't, like I always tell my clients, don't come back, right? We don't technically <laughs> want you to come back. And it's, and it's also what I've learned over the years, it's not so much somebody maybe being irresponsible or not learning their lesson. Life happens. Mm-hmm. Life happens over the years, you know, job loss, divorce, layoffs, anything can happen that can put a consumer in a situation where credit is not the priority. You know, gas, gas, in the gas tank food on the table sure. is the priority. And so life happens and, and our clients <laughs> fortunately trust us enough to come back. And that that's actually a, a great thing and a testament to just how long we've been around. Sure. And, and so we've had clients now bring their kids and their kids are not kids anymore. They're adults. Yeah. The generational and, business and so, that you have. <laughs> and, and part of that is just because my client wants to bring his kid down here just to sit down and talk for a little bit, just so they can get a more understanding on how credit works, because there's, th- frankly, they just don't teach you about credit in school. They don't, yeah. the concept well, of credit is not something that's in school. Let's, let's segue to that because that's actually on my list of topics. So let's go ahead and give like a, a very basic understanding of kind of the credit system and why we have it. And then secondarily, kind of the best practices when people are starting out credit. Yeah. So, you know, the origin of credit it uh, goes back probably a hundred years now, uh, maybe a little longer as, uh, you know, the economy in the United States started to really require consumers to finance things, right? The invent, you, going back to the invention of the car, the invention of the, the washing machine was a, really the big one where consumers wanted it and they couldn't afford to pay it for one in upfront or these retailers decided that they could, you know, sell the stuff on time, what they would call it. And the the invention of credit was these localized bureaus, what they called them, like merchant associations. And I mean, you talk a hundred years ago, there's no computers, right? So everyone's keeping record of your historical ability to pay. And really what they would do is a merchant would report that if you don't pay them, right, they would send you to the merchant's bureau. And so, and that was really the beginning of this database that started to be kept by people. And they were localized, they were regional, right? So say Bakersfield had its own merchants bureau. And, and so they were just kind of localized and regionalized, but there was no regulation. And so a hundred years ago, some of these decisions could be made unfairly based on, you know, the color of your skin, your gender, your religion. And, and so lo and behold, in the sixties, maybe the seventies, the equal credit opportunity act, you know, right around the time of the civil rights movement became a fundamental part of our industry where this act regulated how credit decisions were made. And it it excluded 
the ability for them to make decisions based on gender, race, and, and all those protected classes that, that came out of that movement, which is a phenomenal change, right? Phenomenal change for, for consumers. But in it brought another problem, and it's how do you start to make these decisions almost fairly? And that's where credit scoring really began. And these really smart people uh, with their last name is Fair and Isaac. I forget their first names. <laughs> Alexander but, Fair. <laughs> yeah, Alexander Fair and was it something Isaac? Yeah. Um, they just, they were mathematicians and they developed mm -hmm. these mathematical formulas to predict risk. And, you know, that's how you started to become into credit scores. And, and anytime you're managing, you know, nowadays millions of files of information, you're going to, there's going to be mistakes in that data. But ultimately, it's the most objective way that they figured out how to grade a consumer and decide whether they're lendable. And it's predictive, right? I mean, as a bank, you need to have a predictable business lending model that's profitable for you, that's not making you lose all the money that you're lending. And then also that's objective and fair and compliant with the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. So that's really like the the birth of how credit started. And it's very interesting to think about it that way. And now almost anything gets financed. And because there's all this information that consumers have at the these major databases uh, along the way, they consolidated these databases to three major databases, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion. So all these small merchant, localized merchant associations eventually got swallowed up by Experian, Equifax, TransUnion somewhere along the way. And so now they're the ones that sell and maintain your data and they sell it to people that want to look at it like banks. They want to know how you pay your bills. And and so that's really the, the fundamentals of how credit began and how we are today. So it's amazing because uh, you're talking about this history, but everything was manual. I mean, it was, yeah. it was written down literally on, you know, three by five cards. Uh, I remember a story when I got in the industry in 2002, uh, talking to some of the underwriters and processors back then, and they'd been in the industry for 15 to 20 years, right? So you're taking yourself back, you know, into the 80s and they were saying something that I thought was really surprising. They said, literally, we would have a phone number to call the person at Sears. They're off of Ming Avenue, right? And they would be the credit department downstairs in the basement. And they would literally have either, you know, it's like a little card file. And it would show every time they made a payment. And they would actually do a rating on the time they made payment, how much they borrowed, what the limit was. And if they've ever been late. So it was a manual reporting. And I think with digitizing all of this and automating a lot of this was designed to actually slow the amount of fraud that was happening because there was somebody that was on the other end that could manipulate data. And I think all of these credit acts that have changed and these fair housing laws and other things were all designed to really take out of the equation any type of form of discrimination in the form of race, color, religion, national origin, sex, marital status, age, really to say what is the base criteria in order to make a credit decision on whether or not to lend or not lend. And the example I gave earlier was, you know, having to be certain height to get on the ride. It's like those guidelines we use are called underwriting guidelines. And in the credit industry, um, what I think you and your team are just phenomenal at is understanding what the 
requirements are for mortgage lenders because you communicate with them enough so you know what it means to be mortgage ready. So in, in your mind, okay, and again, there are some, as I would say, aggressive lenders that are willing to be more flexible on certain things and take more risk on. I'm not talking about those, but let's just talk like a normal borrower that's say trying to get in position to borrow money. What would be an ideal credit ready or mortgage ready client? And what are the things that you look for that you're shooting for as far as baselines? Yeah, certainly we have almost like this criteria that we go through when evaluating a credit report. And the first thing that I'm look at that I'm looking for is when was the last time they were late or when was the last time a new collection showed up? Because that criteria says that for somebody to be mortgage ready, we, our goal is for them to not have any delinquent item on the report in the last 12 months. So if I see a late payment from two months ago and I determine based on the creditor and my experience that that late payment can't be removed, then I can immediately say you're a 10 month file because you had a late payment two months ago. So you got 10 months to go. And if you pay late on month four, your 10 months start over, your 12 months start over, right? And that really hits home to the consumer because they don't want to start over. They want to get to their 12 months in a row with no lates and no delinquencies. And so that's like the first thing is make, let's make sure you don't have any delinquencies or late payments in the last 12 months. Second from there is we want to make sure you don't owe anybody any money. I mean, a collection on the credit report literally says somebody let you borrow money and you didn't pay them back. Yeah. And that, that, that is something that we want to address, right? Whether you agree with the account, disagree with the account, that's the process of credit repair. How are we getting rid of this from the report? And everybody's going to be different. Somebody might say, I disagree with it and here's the reason why. And then mm -hmm. we can figure out a credit repair dispute strategy or it might be totally legitimate. And we might just need to settle up with them and say, hey, we've got to square up. We can probably save you a lot of money, but this is the plan on, on the debt settlement side. And so we go through that criteria because the end goal is 12 months, no lates. And we don't want anybody there saying that you owe them money. And, and so that's really um, the first two. And then the final piece, really I call it my, my three-piece recipe, is three open active accounts in good standing. Sometimes consumers don't have any credit. Sometimes they have one account. And so we wanna make sure that they have three open active accounts in good standing. And so once those three pieces are in place, that consumer is very likely gonna be 640 or higher. And that's how we determine somebody to be mortgage ready. Yeah, no, that's a great criteria. I think the baseline at 640 is very powerful because it opens the doors to other programs like down payment assistance and potentially being qualified for better terms in financing. So one of the things that I, I think is important, you brought it up was, you know, this this idea of having to start over if you make a mistake, right? Meaning you, you started this 12-month journey and you go late four months in. It really has to do with habits, ultimately disciplines and habits. And I think you mentioned this before the podcast is that, you know, there are people out there that are not good at staying on the course because they just haven't been given very good education. There's no coaching. There's no counseling. And does your firm do that? Meaning try to teach them, you know, to, to do things properly. So it's going to put them in a better financial situation down the road. Just saying that your 12 months are going to start over when a new late happens, like click, like, okay, well, mm -hmm. that's not going to happen, especially yeah. if, if the end goal is a home, right? Sure. Uh, because it, it's it's such a motivating thing, right? I, I need my house. Um, my living situation is not ideal. And so that tends to click for them typically when we put it that way, right? But then you have situations that are 
unique where maybe you're not responsible for this payment. You're a cosigner and you cosign for a relative. And so then we, we identify that. Wait, you're not responsible for this? Okay, this is a huge danger. You, 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 you are not in control. Let me give you some advice. You make the payment and have your relative pay you. That way, if they pay late, they pay you late, but you're on time with the bank. And then you can play debt collector with your relative uh, so because it protects your credit. That. Yeah, go back and explain that because you said co-borrower, but explain what the relationship between borrower and co-borrower really is because this gets misunderstood all the time. And oh, then yeah, we'll also go back and talk about authorized user, but I want you to the, explain this because the understanding is, oh, I'm not making the payment, right? I just co-sign. Uh, no, I'm just the co-signer. <laughs> yeah. So you're not relieved of that responsibility. You really, as a co-signer or co-borrower, you're essentially promising the bank that if that person doesn't pay, you will, right? Yeah. When somebody needs a co-borrower, I need a co-signer, the bank does not trust them by themselves. So they need somebody else to go after in case that person doesn't meet the responsibility. And that's really what it is. Unfortunately, it's not like you take 50% of the damage because you're 50% responsible. No, like it hits you both equally and you're both responsible for the debt equally. And so it's not like if it goes to collections, you get to pay your half and then they leave you alone and go after the other person for the other half. No, they will go after both of you till somebody pays in full. And the damage on the credit score for late payments affects you both. Like if, you know, if you're a single person on that account. So you don't have any less responsibility. Maybe you even have more, but that, that would be unfair to say. It's just the same, right? There's no difference essentially when it comes to the credit scoring system. If you're not in control of that account, and you're trying to get mortgage ready, and that account has had late payments in the past, it is a very good idea for you to take over the payments and have the other person pay you. Sure. Now, one of the things that will only alert you to that is if you're watching your credit and monitoring your credit, right? And it'll be too late if a late payment, if Understood. you get alerted but by a late payment on the report. Once that happens and you start taking the payment and making the payment yourself, it becomes integrally important to then still continue to monitor your credit. Absolutely. So let's go back real quick to one point, and then I'd like to go over and talk about different types of ways to monitor your credit. Um, explain what an authorized user is versus a sole account, a joint account, a co-borrowed account, and then an authorized user. Can you break those out? Certainly. So uh, we talked about co-borrowers where it's essentially synonymous with a, a joint account. I mean, it, it really is joint borrowers or co-borrowers or co-signing. It's the, that is the exact same thing when it comes to the way that credit reports, credit report, um, the Fair Credit Reporting Act kind of manages the way that that, that goes on the credit report. And, and it's just typically the way that originates is you both open the account at the same time. Like you went to the place, you, you got the card, credit card at the same time, you got the loan at the same time. That's a joint account or also a, a co-borrower type of account. Co-signer, co-borrower, same thing. Um, then you have an authorized user, which is typically something that's limited only to credit cards. And that is somebody adding somebody after the account has been opened as an authorized person to use the account. And it's just strictly to make sure that they have a card with their name on it so that when they go buy something at a store and they get ID'd to make sure that card has their name for them to meet that you know, I guess security requirement, but there's no responsibility for the person who's an authorized user to pay the debt. And there's no expectation from the bank that the authorized user is going to pay any debt, but it works really well when what we would call piggybacking, where the history of the trade line goes on the authorized user uh, report credit report, and they get like retroactive history that really helps their credit score. It's used commonly for 
in families, a, a, a dad putting their kid on a, on a card for an emergency, a husband putting it on the spouse for them to be able to go buy on this particular credit card. And so that's the typical application of it. You can be removed from it at any time. So there's no risk for either party. And um, there's if you do get removed from it, you technically get like you can remove it from the credit report really easy as well. And so typically that's the the application um, as opposed to what, what were the other ones that you brought up? Well, you, you've covered them. So basically a sole account, a cobard account, a joint account, an authorized user. So I ask these questions. I want to kind of relate it back to the mortgage side and what I see on this end. So there are specific guidelines and underwriting that will allow a, an account that's listed as a co-borrower account, okay, that is not a joint account, but a co-borrower account. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but a a co-borrower account where the primary signer is not our borrower. If they've made those payments on time for the last 12 months, this is historically like a installment loan, a vehicle debt, but I've seen it on credit accounts as well. They will allow us with proof from the primary making those payments on time for 12 months to exclude that debt. Now, it's not for every loan class, so it's very specific. So in that application process and evaluating credit, that's something that we look at. And we're trying to figure out, is this a debt that our borrower should be qualified with? The second thing is an authorized user account. In those situations, like you said, they're given um, access to that credit account, but they're not financially responsible. It is typically seen when somebody's trying to build credit and piggyback, if you will, on the positive trade history. But I have seen it where an authorized user account has a late payment and it does negatively affect it. And in those situations, we asked our borrower to contact the primary owner of that authorized user account, if you will, and ask them to remove that authorized user status. And in many times it actually improves our scores because by that time they've already gotten the net benefit of building credit profile from a starting standpoint, now they have other trade lines that are open and active, have positive history for 12 to 24 months or greater. And removing that authorized user status doesn't affect our loan negatively, but it also enhances the fact that we don't have to show another liability on the credit report. Even though they're not responsible for it, it's still something that cleans up the application, if that makes sense. Great. Now, um, I appreciate all that, and it, it's really helpful, I think, for certain people that don't know the difference. They just know that credit exists, and they can have these different types of ways of applying for credit. Let's jump into um, the credit score and what goes into it. So I know you have a graphic that you can possibly share here that explains what all goes into a credit score. So it's actually a um, – here's what we would call our FICO score pie chart um think of the you know you know the 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 kfc chicken recipe do you I know don't it? know it it's a secret isn't it it's a secret <laughs> maybe i don't know maybe with google we can figure it out yeah <laughs> uh, but tech you know that is their claim to fame right like it's a secret sure. recipe a secret recipe and, there you go and, and so really the, the fico score algorithm um, I think even if they did publish it, you know, it's probably this complex mathematical algorithm that we're not actually going to go and start to compute. But technically, it is this somewhat of a trade secret from from Fair Isaac and company. And so, uh, but this is what they are willing to publish, and and so this is kind of how we are able to determine 
uh, how credit scores technically work. And most models will work in very similar ways. You know, there's so many credit score models that I'll show you another graphic here in a moment. But generally, they work the same way. So if your, your FICO score is going up, maybe your Vantage score is also going up. And if your FICO score goes down, your Vantage score goes down. Just exactly how much and, and to what capacity are, are really what vary. But this is what we would call our, our FICO score pie chart. And real briefly, you know, you see the two big numbers. And that's the way, if you want to move a credit score up or down, this is where you're going to focus at. 30% of amounts owed and 35% payment history. And so the biggest part here is 35%. And payment history, it literally is just like, are you on time or are you not on time? A collection on the credit report indicates you're significantly past due and it will hurt you quite a bit, you know, 35% of that score. And if we try to do a little bit of math, you know, we're not mathematicians, but if we do a little bit of math, the minimum FICO score on this on this particular, most models is going to be 300. The, the numbers actually vary between bureau, but let's just go with a 300 number. The maximum number is going to be 850. Right, so there's 550 possible points that are up for grab. Why they don't go from zero to 550, I don't know, but they go from 300 to 850, right? So 35% of 550, that's a big jump of points that you could potentially be losing the moment you start to not pay your bills on time. And that's how you see people go and be in the 400s. If I see a 400 credit score, there's a guarantee, like 99.9%, .9 that we have active delinquencies that are happening right now, not the two months ago, you know, right now they're late on sure. several accounts and not 30 days late, like 60, 90 days late. That's how, and that's this 35% that we're seeing is just, do you pay your bills on time? 30% is the second way that you can move your score up or down pretty quickly. And, and that's just how much debt you're carrying in relation to your credit card limits. So it's not really a number. They don't care that you owe 50 grand in credit cards. If your credit card limits are 250 grand, Right. Sure. It's just a relation of the balance on your credit cards to your credit limits overall. And so if you owe a thousand dollars and your limit is thousand dollars, you're going to be losing some points there in this category. And, and that's really, you know, 65%. It's just how much debt you're carrying in relation to your credit cards limits and how are you paying your bills on time or not on time. And here's the thing. If you start paying your bills late, then your credit limits are going to be reduced without you actually charging up more debt, your utilization rate will go up. And so, uh, yeah, they, they go together very well. The other part of this is gonna be uh, your length of credit history. And we really don't have a lot of control over that. Uh, sure. You know, your age is your age. We don't wanna say that it's based on the consumer's age, but it's based on the age of your credit history. You could have a young person, you know, in their early 20s, have a really long credit history if they're an authorized user on a parent's account that's been <laughs> providing credit history for a long time. And that's a little bit of a hack, a little bit of a trick, uh, but it works. Um, and, and so, but that's really what that is, is the, the average age of your accounts, if you want to be more specific, sure. is the length of your credit history. And uh, new credit really is synonymous with inquiries. Um so if you have too many inquiries, too many new accounts. Those are kind of lumped into this 10% category, uh, which really is a small amount. And this is kind of where people get the whole, well, if I check my credit or you run my credit, this inquiry is going to ding my score. Yeah, I guess so. It's a small ding. You know, it's a, about 10%, but it's not going to be that fixed number every time, right? It's not going to be um, five points every time or it's not a fixed number. It's really relative to where you stand overall. Um, but yeah, you want to limit obviously inquire unnecessary inquiries and limit 
if you open up new credit, not only are you taking a hit on the inquiry side, but you're lowering the average age of your credit, which take a hit on the 15% side too. And then the credit mix, the other remaining 10%, it's just going to be, do you have a good variety of credit? Do you, do you have a revolving account, an installment account, you know, different types of loans, educational loans, auto loans, personal loans, credit cards. There really, there's not a whole lot of science behind that. It's just most people have that because they have an auto loan, they have a credit card, and they have a mortgage. And frankly, that's more than enough you'll ever that you'll ever need to have a great credit score. So there was something said by Dave Ramsey: your credit score is a debt score. That's literally what he calls it, right? It's a yeah, debt I don't like score. that. Okay, so here's one thing I want to bring up and just ask the question. So the Holy Grail. As far as credit score that most people want to get to is what number? Well, typically 850, right? Or over yeah, well, that's perfect, right? But yeah. anybody, anybody that gets to 800 is really, I think, in the the top echelons, right, score-wise. Yeah. So what would be, I guess, a, a, an ideal profile if somebody wants to hit an 800 credit score? Yeah, so I've never seen an 800 credit score with somebody that has anything bad on there. So an 800 credit score, if you look at it, um, if there's something that's going to be bad on there, it's going to be old. Uh, let me rephrase that. Bad things can only be on the credit report, like a late payment or a collection. It can only be there for seven years. Mm. So if someone has an 800 credit score, whatever they had that was ever bad, if ever, is not there anymore. Like you're not going to see a late payment from five years ago and somebody with an 800 credit score. Those two things don't really go together. The same thing with their credit utilization. They're not going to be owing 50% their debt or even 20%, honestly, of their overall credit utilization. They might be really low, either 1%, maybe as high as 10%. I mean, these people really, really carry a low amount of credit card debt when it, in relation to their limits, you know, 10% of their limits, probably max is what I would say. Um, and anywhere in between you, you, you have the ability to be in that 800 club and then, so never late, right? We've established that like never, 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 um, 10% or less utilization. And then they don't have to have a ton of credit. You don't need a whole bunch of accounts, but because they don't open accounts all the time, they have the average age of their credit history probably be i'm going to be a bit of a speculation but i would say 10 years or more the longer the better and so uh, and i'm talking average age so if you have someone that starts to open up accounts in the last year and they have three new accounts it lowers your average age and if that pulls sure. you down probably below 10 years uh, you might you might go to 790 and you know that's that's catastrophic yeah, I know. Well, I can tell you there there have been some clients that uh, that that score is a pride marker, and when they come in, they're just grossly scared of anybody pulling their credit because they don't want to tip that number down. The one thing that I try to explain to a client is when a credit port, report is pulled, that score is the score. The only way you're going to know that there's a change is if a score is pulled after that score, right? Yeah. That's the only way we can mark it because. You know, um, that there's no other way to know because the actual inquiry that you have at the time and the score that was pulled is the score. So it's kind of funny. It reminds me of clients. Almost every client I talk to or every prospect I have a conversation with starts off with, I used to have great credit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's why and I'm it, here, right? I'm, it, I used it, to be skinny too on Selmo, but. <laughs> And it's really like, okay, 
but there's no historical record of that credit score on your report, right? It's a snap. Your score is a snapshot of where your credit stands right now. now. Yeah. And then it's kind of forgotten. Like they're, they're, your credit reports don't keep like, well, this you used to have this credit great sure. credit score. No, it's it's just what is it right now? And yeah. and that is the decision that uh, lenders, you know, that data is what lenders would use to make the decision. And so I wish that, it, you know, imagine if they based it on, well, you used to have a great credit score, so we're going to ignore the one you have right now because of <laughs> what you had in the past, and we'll make this credit decision based on that. But it's just really funny to me that, that they always lead with that. Um, and I always get a, a bit of a chuckle because it's like, well, we'll, we'll make your credit score great again. <laughs> Good line. I like that. Um, I want to segue real quick into the importance of – tiers and getting to the next tier and how it actually affects you. So um, if you can stop that screen share, I'm going to pull up mine and I'm going to show something and I want you to discuss and kind of how that happens. So when we look at credit scoring models and how it affects mortgage interest, there's something called a loan level pricing adjustment. And in a nutshell, every 20 points affects the borrower's cost to obtain financing. So this is purchase money, loan level pricing adjustments from Fannie Mae. And you'll notice the down payment, meaning how much money uh, percentage-wise, 5% down to 95, 95% to 90%, meaning you know that 5 to 10% down. Every one of these has an adjustment. So let's just say that somebody comes to the table with a 780-plus credit score, and they're putting down 5%. There's going to be an adjustment of 0.125 to the cost. And this is going to be very confusing, but it's a multiplier on the loan amount. So if you're doing that and you have a one, let's say, situation of a $100,000 loan, you'd pay $125 as a cost, okay, by putting down 5%. Now, that cost goes up a little bit. And this is the weird part. You see how it actually went up when they put more money down, even with the higher credit score? Okay, yeah. This is a very recent change. You know what they did that for? No, why? They were saying that people that were in the lower credit scores were being penalized for having lower scores and paid more and higher fees. So they equalized it by starting to penalize those people that have higher credit scores. And they're collecting more from them to help defray the costs of lower credit scores. However, on the, in this scale too, this does not take into consideration the mortgage insurance, right? Correct. This is just one thing. So if you look down here, there's additionals. So you'll have adjustments for it being an adjustable rate mortgage, a condo, an investment property, second home, manufactured home, a two to four unit investment property, high balance loans, any type of adjustments for uh, adjust rate mortgages. And lastly, this is a new one, any debt ratios over 40%. So look at, if you truly want to have no adjustments, you need to have a FICO score above 780 with at least, in this case, 30% plus down, okay? 40%, excuse me, because it has to be a 60% loan to value. That's truly your zero, zero. Wow. So anybody that has less than 40% down is paying some form of fee as a cost. Now, this is, is this very recent. Literally, it's gone to effect May 1. So we will release this data um, on 119.23, but now all lenders that I know of are already applying this because it has to be for any loans that are bought 
or transferred to servicing by Fannie Mae after May 1. So all loan locks right now, there's a delivery time frame. So all lenders are applying this type of adjustment. So this is a, a actual cost to get the loan, right? Correct. So when somebody is, um, so is this absorbed in an interest rate? Is this at the end, all these fees and costs then translate to an interest rate? Correct. So let's just say, I'll give you an example. Let's just say the, the prevailing interest rate is six and a half percent. Okay. But in order to get that six and a half percent, you have to pay one point. Okay. But let's just say your credit score is 725 right here, right? And let's just say you're putting down 10%. You're going to have to pay an extra 1.25 points on top of the 1,000, the one point that you're paying before. So now your net cost with 10% down to get that particular rate is 2.25 points. And those are part of your closing costs. So those are real expenses the consumer pays, but the borrower doesn't know about these charts and know very rarely. I show my clients this stuff because I'm very transparent because I don't want them to surprise. It's like, no, it's not, it's not me. Like they're adding this on as an expense. And this is all based off of risk. Literally, that's what this is, this is a risk-based chart. Okay. So anyways, I just wanted to show that because it's just not talked about, bottom line. I mean, and that, that's why I bring it up. But let's jump into the last, uh, you know, part of this segment here is tell me about credit scoring models out there and say Credit Karma. That's a good one. So I'll, I'll definitely, um, you know, you mentioned risk-based charts, and that's mm -hmm. really the, the, the look and the frame of and the lens that we need to look at credit scores. And so if we look at this uh, here, this is essentially a risk-based system where all these credit scores are designed to predict risk to the lender who's lending the money. And so if we look at this here, you, you start to see uh, all of these different credit score models. And let's see here. This, this is where Credit Karma kind of gets its bad rap. And the bad rap comes in the form of my Credit Karma says one thing, I go to the dealership, I go to the mortgage center, and it says something completely different. And what we need to understand is that they're looking at a different score model, right? Right here on this screen, we can see all the different versions of the score, right? And they're constantly releasing new ones. You know, you see your, your version 9, 8, 2. Well, now we have this newly released version that has all these different flavors associated with it. And if I, for example, if I score, score 10 and then score 10T and the T's for trended data, which is a whole fun subject we can talk about too. But um, just look at how many credit scores just with FICO there is. And if you're a mortgage lender or you're an auto lender, you really care how your consumer pays their bills, but you really, really care how they've paid their car bills before. So just sure. to give you a quick example, if you've had a great credit, but you have some late payments on a car loan, you're car loan score is going to be lower than probably any other versions that you see on this screen. Um, and vice versa on mortgages or vice versa with credit cards, right? They, they're very industry specific, designed to predict risk for that particular lender. And for mortgages, you know, we're still stuck here. Long, really old credit scores. Uh, it's very fascinating to me, but um, it's been like this for probably over 20 years now, maybe longer. These scores are very old. They're just... I guess they consider them very predictive. 
and um, I think they're very consistent in reporting data. But um, this is, I think, really telling to the viewers and listeners. I mean, for those people listening to this audio only, they're and someone's showing a screen from my FICO's website, and I can, I would say, at least fifty between all of these, right? Different scoring models. FICO. Yeah, just just, and yeah, and. let, let's close that out. I want to play a quick clip from a video that I recorded. And uh, my title of it was, is, you know, is uh, Credit Karma lying to me? So let, let, let's watch this real quick and tell me your thoughts on it. So let me open it up. So the question I get all the time is, is Credit Karma accurate? Well, it is if you're using the Vantage 3.0 score. Understand Credit Karma does a soft credit pool and it does repeat a score, but it's not necessarily the lender score that a mortgage lender would use. Mortgage lenders use the Fair Isaac score version two for Experian, the classic 04 for TransUnion, and the Beacon 5.0 for Equifax. If you want to know the exact score that's going to be used for creditors that use mortgage financing, go to myfico.com and look up mortgage credit scores. So question I get all... So I am shocked because I, you know, I, I tell people when they come in, they're like, well, Capital One said this. And, you know, oh, yeah. um, my credit score from uh, Credit Karma says this score. Well, it's can't even, not even close. And I said, if I knew that formula, like I could say it's an 18 point difference from this score, from Vantage score, I would have that plugged in. It would be on my desktop. I would be able to convert immediately, you know, say this is a predictive score based off of these changes, right? But that formula is like the black box that's on the airplane. Yeah. We won't know until, you know, the plane goes down and we're listening to the flight data because they're there it's totally blocked. We don't we don't know that stuff. And it's terribly difficult because when you're guessing what the algorithm's doing, it's just difficult. Sometimes they just tell me what's on the menu. So a, a quick example of why they are going to vary so much is some versions take into account, say, medical collections. You know, some versions still include medical collections. So, like the newer versions of even Vantage and even FICO, they completely ignore medical collections. It's like they pretend they're not there. But mortgage credit scores count them as if they're the same thing as any non medical collection. So, you're going to see a big variation if someone has medical collections, it's the only problem on their credit report. They could have a great credit score on Vantage or the newer FICO versions, go buy a house and get, you know, really low score. And that, that's actually one of the biggest ways that you can see a big difference. Um, so that is definitely um, probably one of the more repeated things that we see in our industry is credit karma. It's not accurate. And I think credit karma is totally accurate. I mean... They look at Equifax. Um, they look at Equifax. They look at TransUnion and the stuff that we want to see: who you owe money to, how old is it, how much is it. That stuff is accurate to the day, right? They pull credit almost every other day for consumers if you're logging in, and so. But you just want to take that credit score and just understand that that version of the score is probably or definitely not what your auto lender is going to see, and definitely not what your mortgage lender is going to see. Although that might change soon. Alan, I, I think your mic's muted. There you go. Can you hear Sorry, me now? Say that again. Sorry about I that. I said, now, 
Like you were saying, though, is that information that you have that you can share now of the changes coming, or is this something that we should do on a future podcast so you have more prep work? Because I put you on the spot. So um, so that information is just something that was announced. Um, I think Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac announced it, and they said something along the lines of, we are considering taking away the, the monopoly that FICO has on the mortgage market, and we want them to include... Uh, other credit score models and technically mm-hmm. other is Vantage. It's really the only other one. And Vantage is just a competitor to FICO. And um, the people behind Vantage are the credit bureaus. The three credit bureaus created Vantage. And so they Vantage has been fighting for years to basically be part of the mortgage transaction market because it's been only FICO. And there's been some changes announced that, yes, we will allow advantage to be a, a score used in mortgage lending. When they will implement that, we don't know yet. Um, and I'm sure we will find out when they start to make these changes, but I, I would, I'd probably say that's two years out at the minimum. Yeah. Um, so, but that's going to be interesting when that comes down the pipeline for sure. Excellent. Which is a big change from the last 15 years that you and I have been working together. Oh, yeah. Because 10 years ago, five years ago, this was like, no, they're never going to do that. They, they no. wouldn't even consider it. Well, and one so thing that did change, they... I think, was positive is the elimination of showing uh, judgments and those items on credit reports. Um, they'd still show bankruptcies. And I, explain why. What was the difference in why they can show a bankruptcy they can't show maybe a judgment? Because on the public records, um, ta- so they eliminated tax liens and judgments, and their source for tax liens and judgments was not a verify. They couldn't verify socials. They couldn't verify last for a social or date of birth, and so you had a lot of errors showing up. A lot of people had judgments that didn't belong to them, common name type of mix-ups, but bankruptcies. They, they have this verified way to confirm that the social matches the consumer. So those are still kind of more accurately staying on credit reports, and, and they have been. Um, but th- that caused a whole other set of issues because now we used to be able to see that someone had a judgment or at least were alerted to the fact that they maybe had a judgment, and you could resolve it before putting them into escrow. And a lot after that happened, we started to get a lot of people with emergency judgment situations where we had to immediately settle the judgment that they found in, in during the SI search or escrow search when they're already in escrow, which is the worst time to be negotiating a debt. Sorry, there's a car alarm going off outside. <laughs> Anyways, um, I want to bring this up because you just brought it up, but it had to do with the elimination of this reporting on the credit report. Now, what lenders use, and most credible lenders will do this earlier than later, is they run a background check report. Now, these are deep dives, and what the deep dive does, it checks for any names that may be associated with real estate that's not disclosed. It may also disclose any judgments. It'll repeat bankruptcies and it'll provide additional documentation for changes in names. So let's just say somebody had a maiden name or they had a name that had a hyphenated name. If there was any type of match, the underwriter in this review would actually have to ask the question, is this our borrower? And if it was, provide documentation to either support, negate, or delete, right? So where you're running into those emergency situations you're talking about is truthfulness of the consumer, because there's a very specific question, are there any outstanding judgments, collections, or liens against you that could potentially pose a lien to our first lien on the mortgage? So what happens is it's almost like 
well, it didn't show up in my credit report. Well, maybe I got away with this, right? So it's it's sad, but I know to, that you told me in the past that people were like, well, hey, you know what? I, I knew about that. To the <laughs> consumer's defense, to the to my consumer's defense, uh, because okay, so sometimes people don't get served and they legitimately have no clue, right? So you have bad process servers faking that they served somebody and lying in their declarations. I mean, it's really that simple. Yeah. Uh, they say, I served this person when they really didn't. And the consumer, I mean, I've had cases where the consumer's like, I was on vacation on the day that they say they served me. I was on vacation. Here's my flight itinerary. Um, and so it's like, wow. But you know, it's a giant mess, even if they have all that proof to undo that judgment. You're talking a sure. legal situation. And you, sure. you know, and, and so, but yeah, so sometimes, often, Consumers don't get served, and and they say that the creditors say that they did, and so it's important to do that search beforehand for sure. Um, and I know that you do. Yeah. Wow, we're already at fifty-seven minutes. We're going to wrap this up right now. Uh, I I think you're a tremendous value, uh, and your 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 company, you. your firm, the things that you do really enhance what I do, and any other lender out there. If there are other lenders, real estate agents, consumers that are looking to have a partner that will not only be transparent but honest and tell you, hey, this is something we can do or we can't do or this can take this much time and this is a realistic time and not you know, promise something you can't do, um, I really recommend working with Innovative Credit Solutions. So, Anselmo, we're going to put your contact information in the show notes. And uh, if they would like to reach out to you, can you just give a quick verbal version of how they can reach out to your company or you specifically or Richard? Please, please reach out. Our office line is 661-369-8130. You can reach me directly at 661-369-8133. You can also visit us on our website at www.bakersfieldcreditrepair.com. You can schedule an appointment to chat with us over the phone on our website. Um, you can also come into our office and see us in person. We don't see too many people nowadays. Most of our calls are online. Uh, so please come visit us in person. We love to see our people. Uh, but thank you so much, Alan. This has been super fun. It's yeah. been a while since we've done something like this. So I really appreciate it. Well, I think there's going to be a lot of value here. And we're going to do more because there's a whole Trevor tre treasure, treasure, horrible, treasure trove of data and information that I think a lot of consumers just don't know they don't know. So thanks again. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too.